welcome to Your Future Starts Now, the go-to podcast for extraordinary women who are ready to step into their next chapter with authentic confidence. I'm your host, Gia Lakwa, empowerment coach, motivational speaker, children's book author, and girl mom. Whether you're a corporate powerhouse or an entrepreneur, this show is designed for you. Your Future Starts Now is more than just a podcast. It's a movement, a movement towards rewriting the rules of success for high-achieving women. Are you ready to get unstuck and step into your next chapter? If so, you're exactly where you need to be. Your future starts now. Welcome to Your Future Starts Now. I'm your host, Gia Lacqua. Thanks for joining us today. I am thrilled to introduce you to Dr. Chris Purnell. Dr. Chris is a dynamic physician leader and social change agent. In her practice, she focuses on health justice, community-based advocacy, and population-wide health promotion and disease prevention. A celebrated visionary and apostle of public health, Dr. Chris recently launched the Esther Group, a public health consulting and health equity strategy firm. As the founder and CEO, she lives the mandate to dare a future where organizations, communities, and systems can innovate for a better world and humanity. Dr. Chris, welcome to the show. Thanks for being with us today. Thanks for having me. Very, very excited about chatting today. I'm so inspired by the work that you do. And one thing that you know you and I have in common, one thing we share is that we're both mission-driven messengers. Yeah. So I would love to know more about kind of your backstory and what led you to find your purpose. Definitely. So like many young children, um, I was in love with this idea of being a doctor. It was mm-hmm. a very romanticized notion, if you will. And my mother cultivated it. Um, I didn't think of being a doctor exclusively, right? Because I always like to dance as well. <laughs> but it was something about health. It was something about the body that I always kept coming back to. Mm-hmm. And throughout grammar school, that really started to amplify. In about the sixth grade, we had a guest speaker, and I will never forget it. This guest speaker spoke about all the different types of professions under the healthcare banner. And the person, she was a woman. She was not a physician herself, but she mentioned a neurosurgeon, a brain mm-hmm. surgeon. Mm-hmm. And my brain clicked. Um, it actually became very fastened on this notion of becoming a brain doctor. Um, and I remember telling my mom, I remember when we got uh, the book for me called I Dream a World, and it's a picture book of Black women first. Mm-hmm. And in that book, there was Dr. Alexa Kennedy, the very first Black woman neurosurgeon. Wow. And she has this famous pose um, where her her fingers are in a triangle and she's in the OR. And I just looked and peered into those women's eyes and I said, I can be her. I can Mm -hmm. be Dr. Alexa Kennedy. And then I learned about Dr. Benjamin Carson. And I tell you all, those larger than life aha moments, because they really, really pulled me across the finish line multiple times in my young life. And I tried to cultivate myself so I could be this brain surgeon. Um, I'm not a brain surgeon. I'm a physician, <laughs> right? But falling in love with the idea of yeah. doing something so complex, something so otherworldly, um, something that required mastery, something that required diligence and dedication really gave me the tools and the skills and the 
assets to become and be whoever I wanted. And I was reared in a home with both of my parents who had had, had uh, been raised in the Jim Crow South. So a very oppressive, mm. racist, um, tyrannical environment. Mm-hmm. Um, and like a lot of Black and or African Americans of their age, they migrated north. And though they did not go to college themselves, they emphasized opportunity and they emphasized excellence. And so I wanted to be able to do everything my parents could not do. So that's how I melded together that passion about becoming a doctor and doing something that could help family, doing something that could help community, um, and really doing something that could build upon this notion of excellence um, and within the Black and African American tradition. So. I spent my young years dancing and telling everybody I wanted to be a brain surgeon. So <laughs> Wow, such an incredible story. Thanks for sharing that. And I love the the crossover of, you know, excellence as you described it and opportunity because that can be so powerful for people. Um, I'm curious, as you went through your journey, uh, this has been lifelong, it sounds like for you, did you ever encounter those moments of self-doubt, right? Like, can I do this? Am I capable? What, how did that show up for you or did it show up for you? And, and how did you approach it? You know, Gia, thanks for that question. Because when a person has, I don't know, transitioned or even arrived at a certain point in their life, it's sometimes hard for other people to see and to imagine all of the struggles. We all yeah. struggle. Yeah. <laughs> Every human being struggles. Of course. Um, all of the struggles that that person may have encountered or continues to encounter to be who they are. And oftentimes I was a first. Um, my mother would say to me when I was young, whether it was baptism, whether it was singing, um, whether it was volunteering, reciting a poem, go first, Chris. And I understood what she was saying to me because she did not have the opportunity to go first in many things. So she was always whispering this into my heart and my soul and my spirit. And so in going first as a young black girl, first in East Orange, New Jersey, um, of course, I encountered struggle. Um, Oftentimes people would say, what makes you think you can do this? Because they had never seen anyone like me doing it. But I came from a household constantly telling me that I could, um, mm-hmm. despite what racism and sexism um, mm-hmm. that we may have experienced um, in the larger society, I constantly was told that I could do it. So that was a huge challenge. I remember I was a tuition student at Glenridge High School in Glenridge, New Jersey. So I lived in East Orange, a predominantly black city, and I went to a predominantly white high school. Um, And I was a first for many of those students. And I remember a student said to me, you know, we were discussing you at dinner last night. And that like kind of threw me off that people were talking about me that I did not know. Um, And she said, you could very well be the smartest person in the school. And you're a black person from East Orange, New Jersey. And it was landing on her. And for me, it was why, why, why not? Why not? And so I learned very young tools yeah. of advocacy, self-advocacy, advocacy yeah. for community. Um, and I learned very early on that systems are designed not necessarily in the most equitable or fair way. Mm-hmm. So I was always bumping up against others' expectations of me. So at times that got frustrating. At times, it got tiresome, um, and it was oftentimes disappointing. So I would have to find ways to refuel. 
um, to re-up, if you will, to say, no, you can do this fight, um, you know, because you don't fight alone. You have your family, you have your faith community, you have your larger community, um, and you have those who are of like mind, heart, and spirit. So I have faced iterations of that, Najia, uh, throughout mm-hmm. my life and throughout sure. my career. And the last thing I'll say about that, what many people don't know, um, two key hallmark moments in my life. Um, one, uh, I have a disability. I have postural orthostatic tachycardia. And I had had symptoms of this all of my young life. Um, and we didn't know what it was. Doctors weren't able to diagnose it. It was so little we knew about POTS then. We know more about POTS now. So I'm talking 20 plus years ago. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until I got to UCLA. My first year was general surgery internship year. I was very, very sick. Um, and we finally got a diagnosis. I had to pull out a training. And I had no idea if Chris would ever become a doctor. Here I had gone to Princeton. Here I had gotten into Duke Medical School. Here I found myself at UCLA in my first year of post-medical school training. And I was so sick that my cardiologist said, I'm pulling you out of the hospital. Mm. And it was a frightening process. Sure. So you're talking about doubt. It's like, what am I if I am not what I always said I was, right? Yeah. Um, and so I had to step back, reevaluate and examine who are you, Chris, as a core? Yes, you want a doctor, you want to treat, but who are you? And understanding healing, understanding advocacy, understanding my love of policy, my love of politics, my love of community. Um, that was a, a watershed moment in my life. And yeah. that setback um, actually has become a badge of honor. Absolutely. It's a sign of your strength and resilience. I think it's also an important reminder that there's a mental and psychological component to the the self-doubt. And then there's also the physical aspect of, you know, health issues. And, you know, of course, if we're not taking care of ourselves, what can happen? So it's an important reminder that it's very holistic, right? We have to really take care of ourselves in all facets of life. And you touched upon some really important concepts when we talked about kind of like overcoming that self-doubt. I mean, I heard you talk about the support and the encouragement that you had. So, you know, even though our audience is, is, you know, high achieving women, but it, it makes us think about who we're surrounding ourselves with today, mm-hmm. right? Um, who are we, who are the voices in our ear? Who are we listening to? Who are we letting influence us and guide us? So I think that aspect of, of support and community is so incredibly important um, that we often overlook, right? Um, and so you talk about preventative medicine a lot in the work that you do. I'm curious, can you take a moment to explain what that means and why it's so important? Great. So I get really excited about this. I'm going to try to dial it down just a little (laughs) so I don't go on too much. Um, But yes, I am a public health and preventive medicine physician. I'm boarded in that specialty. Um, And not many other of my clinical peers, my clinical physician peers, um, know a lot about preventive medicine and public health. I think the public's imagination has been seeded through this pandemic because they're beginning to understand that public health really is all-encompassing. It's the neighborhood that you live in. It's whether you have access to healthy, affordable, and nutritious food. Um, It's do Mm -hmm. you live on clean, um, lit, safely, 
I mean, I should say safe streets that are walkable. Do yep. you have access to quality education? Um, do you earn a living wage? Do you have access to safe, high quality, socially and culturally fluent care? So public health talks about all of those determinants, whether those determinants are um, medical or clinical in nature or non-medical and structural in nature. So as a public health and preventive medicine physician, I tell people I treat systems. Mm. I look at whether those are systems of care, so hospitals, um, community health systems, or broader systems, political systems, yeah. um, organizational systems. Sure. And do those systems either encourage, influence, um, or promote health and well-being, or do they create barriers around health and well-being? Right. So I am a physician that does systems work. I look at whole populations. Those populations can be clinical populations, people who have diabetes. Um, those can be geographic populations, people who live in New Jersey. Those can be ethnic or racial populations, African-American. Those can be populations by gender. You name it. So I look at populations. And what are the distribution of outcomes, health outcomes among that population? What are the factors either encouraging health or the factors that are preventing health? So I sit on the board. I am a region at large for the American College of Preventive Medicine. And we really think about prevention as a, as a tool, um, prevention as a superpower. Um, and we think about it through policy and through practice. So you find it's one of the hosts of things. Amazing. So much there to unpack. When you think about systems and, and health equity, particularly around women, I'm curious in your experience, what do you see as the biggest barriers, the systematic barriers that you encounter? Yeah. Too often, women are not the specific points of view. So when I was learning medicine, we too often made assumptions around how health conditions manifested or showed up in people's lives based on the male sex and or gender. Yeah. And we weren't considering how even women may present differently with symptoms of heart attack. Yeah. Right. And that can even be specialized down to the intersectionality of humanity, thinking through about black women. Um, do we uh, validate their pain when a black mm -hmm. woman presents to a healthcare provider, um, whether it is around birthing or any other health condition and says, I have pain. Um, is she believed? Mm. Right? We hear her. And, and that I started to first notice in healthcare as I was learning right through my medical education that we learned so much from the perspective of a white male patient, mm -hmm. right? Cause we're talking, I was in medical school from 1999 to 2003 at Duke. Um, so medicine and medical education was beginning a shift. Um, yeah. we, we weren't anywhere near where we are now and we're not where we need to be, but we weren't anywhere near where we are now. And then when I got diagnosed, um, the barriers I went through with my diagnosis, I had physicians telling me it was in the head. I had physicians telling me I was just anxious and stressed. Um, and people were so dismissive um, to the fact that I couldn't breathe, that I couldn't walk around my patients without my heart racing. And then I was starting to pass out. And it took some some time for me to get a proper diagnosis. And because it took some time, I actually suffered some ill effects, meaning my ejection fraction, how well my heart was performing dipped. 
And that's too often what women and especially black women can encounter in healthcare. And that's why the work of health equity is the assurance and that's an important word, as Dr. Cameron Jones says, the assurance that all people can achieve the highest level of health. Mm-hmm. So important. And you talk about, you know, advocacy. And I think that experience that you went through is far too common, right? Where people, women do, don't feel heard. Mm-hmm. Um, they're not validated and they're dismissed. Yes. Any advice that you would have for women who might be in that situation? Definitely. Um, Learn self-efficacy and Mm self-advocacy, right? So let me explain the difference. So efficacy is the ability to make an informed choice or decision. So learn about your body. You actually are the expert about your own body. Absolutely. You know, you know when something doesn't feel right. We or, forget. We forget no, that, right? You know, you are yeah. the first expert, right? And you're like, hey, I noticed this is different or something is off. Maybe you can't find the right words, but know your body. Learn your body. Be open with your body. Um, And that's the first step, right? And then advocacy is the ability to be able to communicate Mm. until you are heard. Until you are heard. Mm. And if at any point in your medical or healthcare interactions, and this is true in all areas of life, but especially in healthcare, if you feel minimized and if you feel disrespected, that is not the right provider for you. Your physician has to be like your healthcare buddy, your partner in shared decision making. Um, And too often when the physician is just the expert, the only expert about what's going on with you, you may not feel empowered um, to speak your truth. Um, And sometimes what I tell people, if you have questions that you know you want your provider to answer, sit down, reflect, write those things down before you go into a healthcare encounter. Mm-hmm. Know your rights as a patient. I did a lot of work around human and patient experience when I worked um, in healthcare. Um, so know your rights as, as, as a patient, um, your right to um, access to your records, uh, what's consent, giving permission around procedures, tests, or things that are being done on or to your body. And the last thing that I would say is bring a friend. Bring a family member. When my sister, my oldest sister, Maria, about three to four years ago, was first diagnosed with breast cancer, my sister and I went to every appointment with her. Yeah. Every appointment. Yeah. So if there was something Kim didn't think to ask, I asked it. And yeah. then I was a, a doctor. And sometimes I could only be available by phone. Sure. But that those are tools and tips that I share with women um, and, and with folks in general about self-efficacy and advocating for yourself. Yeah. Tremendous resource. And those are, yeah, great concepts, self-efficacy and self-advocacy. And mm-hmm. I think so often I can speak from personal experience and I also see it in the client population that I work with as women who are hyper-focused on everyone else's needs, I think we often become dissociated from our own bodies. We become disconnected. Um, We often tell ourselves, it's just a headache. It's just a stomach ache. And that's not always the case, right? Sometimes there's more there and we dismiss the own signs and symptoms that our body is giving us. So it's great advice. And in, in your 
experience, what do you see today as the most prevalent health concerns that are facing middle-aged women? Yes. So um, I do a lot around health promotion and disease prevention. Um, and so in speaking with women in general, heart disease is still the number one killer for mm -hmm. all persons in the United States. But still too often, women who present with symptoms around heart disease or heart conditions, they're not necessarily hurt. Um, and we need to have a better understanding of how different uh, conditions present in different patient populations. And we need to communicate in ways that are accessible um, and socially and culturally fluent and relevant to how people can prevent um, disease and how people can promote health. So I do a lot around helping people to understand physical activity um, needs for a healthy body and mind and spirit mm -hmm. and uh, nutrition and just stress management, right? Because all three of those are going to impact your heart health. And that's the most important thing. Then the other thing is <clears throat> we think about cancer. Um, we think about the different types of cancer. Um, I think of, there is a lot of conversation and rightfully so around breast cancer. But as you begin to look at women across different populations, we need to broaden the understanding of how does the body work when it's working well, so that people can begin to understand symptoms or signs that might say, hey, the body's not working so well right now go and get checked out, right? Mm. So in particular, I'm a pre-med physician. I remember having a conversation with my gastroenterologist. Um, and at this point, I probably was about 43 or so. Um, and he was saying to me, uh, I think we should consider doing your first colonoscopy. And I was like, no, I think it's too early um, according to our guidelines as long as we start screening around age 50. You know, I'm 48 now, so we're talking about five years ago. And he's like, look, the reason why I'm raising this to you, Chris, because in the African-American population, colon cancer actually shows up sooner and it has a higher mortality rate. Mm. So I think we really should consider doing a colonoscopy. And me? being stuck in my own understanding. And that's why I love to give people this scenario. I was like, no, I think it's too soon. Not long after that, I got diagnosed with vitamin B12 deficiency mm. disorder where my body just didn't have the right cells in the gut to take up or absorb vitamin B12. And I got very, very sick. Wow. So I got sick on top of my baseline um, condition of POTS. And as soon as I got that diagnosis, one of the first things my hematologist told me was, you got to get <laughs> an EGD. So you got to look at your esophagus and you got to get a colonoscopy. colonoscopy. Because a person who Aww. has pernicious anemia, as it's also known, has a higher risk for colon cancer. Mm. And I remember I had to call that doctor back. And I'm like, I got it. He's like, okay, thank you. And you know what, Gia? That examination turned out to be curative for me because I had polyps. Yeah. I had polyps. Yeah. I had already developed polyps at age 43. Yeah. And those polyps in your, in your colon, even if they're not cancerous, right, they can become pre, they can be precancerous sure. and develop into cancer. Sure. So I say that around cancers more broadly, 
understand how the body works, understand gut health, right? Understand your bowel, understand your sexual health, Mm -hmm. um, understand the risk factors for cervical cancer, understand Mm -hmm. HPV, how often should you be getting HPV, high risk HPV testing, Um, understand, you know, breast cancer, how should you be examining yourself? How frequently should you be getting mammograms? Do you have average risk or do you have elevated risk? So those are just some of the ways that I speak with women in, in general um, so that they understand those two large, I would say, disease categories that are causing the bulk of morbidity, so being sick um, and mortality actually dying. So we could we could just start there and there's a host of things um, that we could begin to talk about. And then if I threw one other thing on there, it's always mental health. It's mm-hmm. always, always, always mental health. And that's why the stress component, especially yeah. with um, women who have very um, demanding careers outside of demanding home lives, women um, who are very much at the forefront of what they were doing. How are you treating, alleviating, and managing stress? Absolutely. Because that is impacts not just your mental health and well-being, but your physical health and well-being. Absolutely. It's such an important component. And I think high achieving women, it's often overlooked, right? Yeah. And and until it's until we have that health scare. Until until you're already sick. Yeah. Yeah. And you also made a good point about like having that partnership with your physician where it has to be sort of a, a combination of their expertise. And then mm-hmm. to your point, you knowing your body and your expertise, right? And I love the fact that you had a physician who was informed, who used the data and the statistics to help educate you. I think that's that's really powerful. Very important. Very important. Yeah. And Dr. Chris, in your opinion, what systemic changes, since we talk, you talk a lot about systems, what systemic changes do you believe are crucial for women to have a better future? Ah, everyone needs access to healthcare. Mm-hmm. Look, and, and I was in a very unique position once in my life. So when I got um, officially or formally diagnosed with POTS back when I was out at UCLA, so it's about the fall of 1999, um, 2003, by that, by that spring, I had to withdraw from the program and shortly thereafter, I no longer had health insurance. This is before. Mm. So I had a pre-existing condition, which made the purchase of health insurance on my own impossible. Wow. Impossible. And I was going through the process of doing a long-term disability application. So there was a, a, a time in my life that I was uninsured. I will never, ever forget the stress of being uninsured. I will never forget the pressure of being uninsured. When you are uninsured, your ability to assess risk versus benefit is skewed because you yes. can't afford, yes. can't afford even the basic things. Um, and I remember once um, my cardiologist, thankfully, he was so kind to me. He said, look, I got a rule. I don't charge physicians. So I was able to always get care for, for my POTS uh, by my cardiologist. But other than that, you know, thankful for my parents. <laughs> Here I was an uninsured doctor. And so wow. I had to go to Planned Parenthood to make sure I was maintaining my dying health. Sure. Right. Um, and I remember that first experience. Right. And and I was saying, I, I need a way to be able to afford <laughs> basic things. I injured myself once. I was a guest of the late beloved. Um, she was then speaker of the state um, legislature, Sheila Oliver. Um, I was her guest at a function. I went up onto the stage in the dais to say hello to some people. And I didn't notice that there was a gap and I fell off. 
and I suffered a concussion mm. and I twisted my knee. I didn't want to go to the hospital that night. Of course. And I begged. I was on the stretcher already. And I said, please, 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 please don't take me to the hospital. I'm not going to be able to afford it. Gia, I'm a doctor. I knew that I had hurt myself. I was in pain. I was pinned for a while. And it took multiple people to help undo me. But I was like, no, 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 no. You can't send me to the hospital. So imagine me knowing the risk, knowing the risk from a professional standpoint. Still, I could not compute in my mind. How will I be able to survive? Because I can't afford the bill. So for women and women across the socioeconomic strata, for women across different geographic regions, race and ethnicity, whether those women are cisgendered or transgendered women, we need access to health care. So that is something that I spent a lot of time advocating for. And um, actually, I started to blog for the Washington Post back when I was uninsured to talk about what wow. Obamacare should include um, because of my experiences. Yeah. And then another thing that I think is so important for women is, and we saw some of these reforms adopted by Obamacare, is that certain preventive care should be free. Yeah. You know that when that preventive care is free, people are more likely to um, to do it and to be able to keep up with it in a routine fashion. Right? Absolutely. So getting that yearly mammogram once it's indicated. Screenings. Getting your pap smear once it's indicated. Getting your colonoscopy. Um, the ability to meet with a physician and have a conversation about your diet and nutrition, about physical activity. So important. That's so, so very important. So I would say those two things, universal access to healthcare and that prevention is always at the forefront of all healthcare encounters, and that is free. Love that. I love that. And so, and I think it's too easy sometimes for us that have healthcare to even take for granted yeah. the fact that I never we should be doing it. You know, before then, I'd always have my parents' healthcare. Yeah. And then I'm in medical school. I didn't foresee being on disability. Of course. And the way that our insurance markets were, were structured prior to Obamacare. I couldn't afford it. It was yeah. exorbitant. It was through very that. scary. Very scary. Dr. Chris, I'm curious. We talk a lot about redefining success mm -hmm. on this podcast. And obviously, you have accomplished some incredible things. And I love the way you were able to take your challenges and your struggles and really use them and 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 use it to help others, right? And change the world. I think it's it's so powerful. I'm curious, how do you define success today? And I would love to know how that definition has evolved for you over time. I love this question, okay? Especially because I recently was talking to high school students across Newark and the greater Essex County. Um, I was at an event and I was on a panel around the healthcare profession. Mm -hmm. um, and I was explaining to the young folk my journey around becoming a doctor. What many people don't know, I've spoken about it publicly, um, but what many people don't know is I took off two years between college and medical school. And on the surface, <laughs> the reason why I did that is because I was very anal and I thought I had to go to a very top medical school because I wanted to be a neurosurgeon. So here I had graduated Princeton from Well. I done well. I had an honors thesis, but I didn't get into the one, the number one, two, or three programs. So I told my parents, "No, I'm not going." And my father was like, "What? 
Men who didn't have access to college and were self-taught and worked at Bell Labs and had started their first cutting grass before he ever got in the lab. And you're turning down medical schools. Turning down medical school? Like I got into multiple medical schools. And he's like, because it's not the one, two, or three program. He was like, Wow. But I have had this really unofficial understanding of what success was. Right. Uh, Because I had been exposed to these elite academic institutions that if it wasn't a certain way, if it wasn't the highway, it wasn't the right way. And I had to fall flat first on my bum to realize that that's not success. Success is the path that is best matched and suited to your needs, your skills and your assets so you can thrive. But yeah, Chris was very anal. So I sat out for two years. Now, during those two years, I did a lot of community service. I worked in ministry. I became ordained. I became a better human being. I learned how to connect with people in deep, 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 soulful ways. Um, but I ultimately got into the number three medical school in the nation. I applied. I just kept applying, 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 Incredible. applying until I got in. Right. And then I went to do my, my dad. Like, finally, like I turned out. I didn't want to thank you yet. She's like, finally, you're going. I'm like, yes, I can go. Um, but I was so caught up in other people's understanding and standards. Yes. Right? Yes. And again, when I initially applied to become a neurosurgeon, it didn't match. And everyone was like, Chris Cornell didn't match. Oh my gosh, how did that happen? Because I was a very competitive medical student coming out of Duke. But I really think the Heavenly Father allowed these things to happen to me so that we never gloss over, even when you achieve, and even when you achieve at high levels, you encounter failures, you encounter struggle, and you encounter setbacks. Because that personalizes you and it humanizes you and allows you to have empathy and for other people, other people to connect with you and to tap into who you are so they can tap into who they are. And so I had to learn that everybody's story was unique and everybody's path was unique and no, nobody's path was linear. <laughs> no, no. Not talk about it, but nobody's path was linear. And so now when I think about success, how does this opportunity, how does this environment, how does it serve you? How does it serve your needs? How does it match with your spirit? How does it match with your soul? Because there will be days that you are tired. There will be days that you are frustrated. There will be days that you are discouraged, perhaps, and even disappointed. And so if it is not right, because it checks all of those other boxes, your heart, your soul, your spirit, your passion, then you're going to suffer. You're going to suffer mentally, emotionally, and physically. So that's success. That's amazing. And it's such a great point that we take other people's definition of success Mm -hmm. and the external expectations. We impose it in ourselves, even if it doesn't fit, even if it doesn't feel right, right. And we're still striving for something. So I think that's a great point. And also, you know, you mentioned learning from the failures, learning from the setbacks. And even when, you know, you're in a lull, right? Being able to still grow through those periods of uncertainty and when you're faced with challenge, um, such incredible, powerful lessons. Dr. Chris, I want to thank you for being here, sharing your insights and expertise, your story. So inspirational. Where can our listeners find more about you and the work that you do? Sure. So first and foremost, I have a website, um, www.drchrisfernell.com. So that's D-R-C-H-R-I-S. 
P-E-R-N-E-L-L.com. Um, and you can see a host of appearances, um, understanding uh, the type of work that I do. And if your organization community may benefit from my services, you can definitely contact me through there. And then I'm on social media because I really seek to make topics about health and well-being more accessible for the public. So you can find me on Instagram under the good doctor MD, all one word. You can find me on TikTok, Dr. Chris at Life Clinic. Um, and I'm just out there on LinkedIn as well under my full name, also looking to connect with other peers and professionals as we paint a future forward that is more equitable and more just for all. Absolutely. And I want to thank you for the work that you're doing because it is such incredible and powerful work, not just for the individual groups, people, or communities, but for society as a whole. So thank you. Thank and of you. course, you can visit my website at gialacqua.com. Reach out to me on Instagram at gialacqua with thoughts, feedbacks, comments, questions on this topic, and what you'd like to hear about on future episodes. This is Gia signing off with gratitude for your time and energy. Our mic drops, but the movement continues. Until next time, your next chapter is waiting. Take care. That concludes another empowering episode of Your Future Starts Now. Before we wrap up, I want to thank this incredible community of high-achieving women. Your energy, resilience, and commitment to growth are the driving force behind what we do. If you enjoyed today's episode, please rate it, leave a review, and don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Your feedback fuels our mission to empower high-achieving women just like you. And of course, share your future starts now with the extraordinary women in your life who are also on a journey of healing and empowerment. Connect with us on social media, share your thoughts, let us know what topics you'd like to explore in future episodes. Stay connected on Instagram at Gia Lacqua. I encourage you to carry the energy of this conversation into your day and keep on supporting the incredible women around you. Until next time, remember, your next chapter is waiting. Thank you.